Good evening. Politics is a dirty business. It always has been, and I guess to some extent it always will be. And the whipping system is very much a part of that culture in Westminster. Indeed, Enoch Powell once famously said in the early 70s that the whips are a necessary part of modern-day 20th century civilization, just like the sewers. So pressure, to some extent, has always been put on MPs of the Labour or Conservative Party to kind of, come on, there's a good chap, toe the party line. But today, there have been one or two very serious accusations made. Accusations against the Johnson government machine. So serious that the Speaker of the House has intervened. And we'll go through all of that uh, and you'll see exactly what's been going on. Are the Tory party becoming the nasty party again, as Theresa May once famously called them? Well, I tell you what, from personal experience, I think they're prepared to do pretty much anything to win. And I think in a, in a democracy, there need to be some limits. In 2019, it was pretty clear, once Theresa May had been removed, and five and a half million Brexit party votes did rather help, but it became clear that they were the votes that the Conservatives needed, particularly in the red wall seats, to get over the line and win a majority. And the attempts that were made to try to stop people, and I'm talking about taxpaying citizens legally standing for public office, were receiving all sorts of phone calls telling them they shouldn't stand. They even had support from national newspapers. The Daily Mail, and I found this at the time quite extraordinary, running front pages, stand down, Nigel. Well, that's OK. I'm big enough and ugly enough to take that. I've had lots of front pages. But just have a look at what came next. A whole double-page spread inside the Daily Mail. And the message was very, very clear. Brexit party candidates below are standing in key seats. Make your voice heard by sending them an email. And the emails, the individual personal emails of those Brexit party candidates were sent out. Again, the cartoonish figure of me doesn't matter about me. I'm big enough and ugly enough to put up with that. But I can promise you, as a result of all of that, these people did receive emails. Thousands and thousands of emails, many of them highly abusive. And as a result, a lot of very good, decent citizens who wanted to participate in the open democratic process decided it was just all too much for them. I think that was wrong. I think it shows you what the Johnson machine is prepared to do. When, by the way, that technique didn't work, well, the next thing they did was to come to me and offer me a whole bunch of peerages. If we took a whole bunch of peerages, then that would be fine. We'd accept that and we'd stand down. But, of course, I didn't do that either. So I maybe, from my perspective, this is a little bit personal on behalf of hundreds of people who were putting themselves forward for public office. So I'm asking you, are the Tories the nasty party again, or is this just how politics works? Love to get your views. Farage at gbnews.uk. Well, let's have a look at what's happened today. And joining me in the studio is Darren McCaffrey, GB News's political editor. Darren, this all started first thing this morning with William Ragg. William Ragg, a Brexiteer. That is significant, I think. Indeed, but no fan of Boris Johnson, but at the same time, an extraordinary intervention in many regards. Now, you're right in pointing out that this, to many people, is not terribly new. The mm -hmm. idea of arm-twisting or cajoling people, you know, even suggestions in the past of essentially, you know, as physically attacking people to try and get them to follow a government line or even an opposition whip in many regards. 
I think the main difficulty comes with what you've just quoted about Inuk Pal, that when mm. it comes to this being a 20th century art form, and many people are saying, well, it's now 2022. And yes, politics is a different business. You cannot, for example, be dismissed in any other industry immediately and find yourself <laughs> out of a job with no kind of compensation. No, that is, politics is a brutal business. There's mm. no doubt about that. Mm. But at the same time, there's a feeling, and this is what William Ragg was stating today, where public form funds, for example, have been suggesting this. Well, people... let's, ha let's have a look at William Ragg and what he said. In recent days, a number of members of Parliament have faced pressures and intimidation from members of the government because of their declared or assumed desire for a vote of confidence in the party leadership of the Prime Minister. It is, of course, the duty of the Government Whip's office to secure the government's business in the House of Commons. However, it is not their function to breach the ministerial code in threatening to withdraw investments from members of Parliament's constituencies which are funded from the public purse. Additionally, reports to me and others of members of staff at Number 10 Downing Street, special advisers, government ministers and others encouraging the publication of stories in the press seeking to embarrass those who they suspect of lacking confidence in the Prime Minister is similarly unacceptable. The intimidation of a Member of Parliament is a serious matter. Moreover, the reports of which I am aware would seem to constitute blackmail. As such, it would be my general advice to colleagues to report these matters to the Speaker of the House of Commons and the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, and they are also welcome to contact me at any time. And William Ragg was speaking there as the Conservative Chairman of the Commons Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee. He talked about intimidation. He talked about stories appearing in the press. That was what Andrew Bridgen, that was his defence when he sat in here earlier this week. And can I just say, just yeah. on that point, I interviewed Andrew Bridgen a little bit earlier on today and he talked about how essentially the whips were walking around Parliament spying on MPs, trying to work out who was going in intimidating was the word he used, mm. trying to essentially dissuade people in an intimidatory fashion from handing in those letters. Yeah. Let's see what Boris Johnson's response to all of this was today. So William Wright has made some pretty serious allegations this morning. He suggested that colleagues were intimidated, that they were threatened to have money withdrawn from their constituencies. He says it's blackmail and that they should report it to the police. And he's also talked about officials briefing embarrassing stories to the press. I've spoken to MPs who recognise some of that. Are those tactics being used to try to stop MPs speaking out against it? I've, I've seen no evidence, heard no evidence to support any of those uh, allegations. And as you go, what I'm focused on is what we're doing to deal with the number one priority of the British people, which is uh, coming through COVID. Uh, and we've made enormous progress thanks to the, to the vaccine rollout, fastest in, uh, in Europe, the booster campaign has enabled us to open up. Uh, we're moving back to the to status quo ante, back to, to plan A. We also had, we also had the Labour defector. Uh, the man, Christian Wakeford, that crossed the floor yesterday, suggesting he was told unless he voted the right way, a school wouldn't be built in his constituency. And then we had something very interesting happen, which I think does make this significant, an intervention by the Speaker of the House of Commons. What I would say, I understand what the Honourable Gentleman said. There are allegations about the conduct of whips. 
and special advisers working for ministers. Serious allegations have been made, and at this stage, without having had a chance to study what is said in detail, I can only offer a general guidance, as I've been in the Chair since this revelation came out, as I understand it, at 10 o'clock. Those who work for them are not above the criminal law. The investigation of allegedly criminal conduct is a matter for the police, and decisions about prosecution are for the CPS. It would be wrong of me to interfere with such matters. While the whipping system is long established, it is, of course, a contempt to obstruct members in the discharge of their duty or to attempt to intimidate a member in their parliamentary conduct by threats. There is clear process for raising privileged matters and referring them for investigation to determine whether the conduct in question is a contempt. And in the first instance, members raising such concerns should write to me, and I hope these general observations will assist the House in going forward. Well, that was the Speaker of the House of Commons, and kind of what he was saying there, Darren, really, was that politics needs to move with the times. Yeah, I think so. And that is why I come back to this fundamental point that politics yeah. has changed, yet we recognise it's not like other industries. But frankly, the big difference is... Of course, there's always going to be a, an attempt to cajole or persuade MPs one way or another. And whips or other politicians will use what they've got in their armoury. I think the main thing today which makes this really troublesome for the government and William Rags kind of thing about, well, this is maybe where the police have to get involved, is not the interesting, it's the use of public money. It's this suggestion... We're not going to build a school unless yes, you do this. precisely. It's this suggestion that you're... Not you will personally use that. Your constituents will not have a school or a road... Or levelling up funds or whatever it may yeah. be. And, yeah. and that goes beyond, yeah. actually, even party politics. That means that your voters, irrespective of how they voted, may well lose out because you've got objections about your leader That's or whatever. And, and that is the main concern. And as you say, it reiterates this sense that actually the government's not in control of this and they're prepared, the people who back Boris Johnson, to go potentially to extraordinary lengths to try and ensure the Prime Minister remains where he is. Hence why this is going to be a fascinating weekend ahead. <laughs> it certainly is, Darren McCaffrey. Thank you very much indeed. Well, you've seen the evidence, you've seen the clips. What do you think? Do you think that our politicians have now become snowflakes and can't put up with the kind of pressure they used to put up with in recent decades? Or do you think that perhaps this has all gone a little bit too far. And the public money point that Darren made, I thought, was a pretty strong one. Let me know, are they snowflakes, or has the Tory party become the nasty party? Yet again, Farage at GBnews.uk. Well, joining me to discuss all of this in a broader context is Philip Blond, former advisor to David Cameron and director of ResPublica Think Tank. So tell me, are these just snowflakes whinging? Is this the way politics has always been? and always needs to be, or, I'll put this to you, many millions of people who voted for Brexit hadn't engaged with politics for, well, forever, in many mm. cases. They were actually hoping for something better than this, weren't they? I think they were. I think that what this is is quite interesting. It's like a Me Too moment. So this has always gone on. I've, I've heard countless stories, I'm sure you're ha yeah. you have, MPs being threatened when... 
the whips know they're having an affair, that they say we'll brief you to the newspapers. That's the job of the whips. They essentially collect blackmail <laughs> material. The little black book. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and that, that's how they control. What I think is, is interesting, and, and the, the th you know, I've heard of direct threats to MPs for, for over the last 10 years. It, it's the norm. What I think is interesting about this is, is you have an MP that you wouldn't expect coming out and saying, actually, you know what, this is unacceptable, and linking it to funding for activities in, uh, in his constituency for the benefits of his constituents. It's, it's a new moment. And what I think is happening in the country generally is that human beings become moral when things break down, when things don't make sense. And morality is a curious thing because, because you can't explain why it exists, but it's a kind of fundamental survival mechanism where people say, actually, we all have to live by norms. And if the norms are breached, then what's after that is unacceptable. So I think this is the redrawing of a new political demand on politics. And I think we're seeing this with COVID and the behaviour in Number 10. I think we're seeing this with all of these revelations. And I think it marks a new, something new from people, which is actually we do want something different. And this is no longer acceptable. So is the objection to the Downing Street parties yeah. to increasing concern about Boris Johnson himself as leader... This is about morality. Yeah, I mean, I think people voted for Brexit um, out of a sense of, of solidarity, that, that, that the Liberal consensus that has been followed since, largely since the 60s by both left and right has essentially atomised people, destroyed collective bonds and essentially taken apart working-class communities and working-class families. And in large part, the vote for Brexit was on a national basis a demand for solidarity. Now, when that happens, that is accompanied by a moral demand that we matter too, our codes matter. And what we're seeing is that um, elites generally, when they become disconnected from the collective kind of legitimacy, become dysfunctional. And, and that moral demand is actually the expression of, of a need for a new politics. Not a moral in the sense of puritanical, oh, sure. but a moral sure. in the sense of, oh, for goodness sake, you know, we yeah, need I, something I, shared I mean, that I is I mean, the decent. cynicism, the cynicism yesterday with which Chris, Christian Wakeford just crosses the floor and sits with Labour, a man who publicly had said that MPs that defect mm. should hold themselves open to the public and doesn't call a by-election. It's all part of it, isn't it? Well, Churchill crossed the floor. So, so, So the point, I think, is I imagine he's in quite a lonely place because MPs who cross the floor are, are hated by those they've left and are not exactly <laughs> welcomed by, by those they join. So I, I kind of feel sorry for him in a way. And the interesting question isn't, I think, to, to impugn a man's motives, but to say, why do you feel he had to do it? Now, now, you could be cynical and say, oh, he was in a tiny majority and, and only Labour can win the seat. But I don't believe that. I generally think people try to operate out of the deepest moral concerns, particularly somebody who makes a sacrifice like that. So I think that we should look on this Is as... It was it a sacrifice? Is saving his own political skin a sacrifice? Well, we don't know if it'll save his own political skin. But he thinks skin. it is. I, I think, look, I generally think that you get a lot out of the world if you think the best of people. Because ordinary, I'm with Orwell on this, ordinary British people are decent and yeah. they want to act decently. Yeah. So this is kind of part of my objection to kind of the whole woke culture. You know, we're one of the 
the greatest countries for racial integration, for looking past uh, things that don't matter. English decency, British decency is real. And so I think we should carry that forward into how we judge others, to be honest. Does Boris Johnson, as Prime Minister, and the methods that he's adopted over the last couple of years, does it fit with that sense of British decency? Look, I think, I think Boris Johnson has, has virtues that it's worth speaking about. And Boris Johnson's great virtue is that, that he's not a market, austerity-fixated Tory who just wants to serve the southeast of England. And the point about Boris Johnson is, is I think almost everybody who voted for him knew what they were voting for. They knew that they weren't, they weren't, they weren't voting for somebody. Well, they weren't voting for the Pope, were they? No. Well, right. And so, so then the question is, is what did people think they were voting for? They thought they were voting for somebody who might give a damn about them, might reorient politics around them. And if you want to injunct Boris Johnson, I never think you should injunct people for personal behaviour. You should injunct no. them, them for, how can I put it, for what they haven't done. But, now, but, now they, but they're not judging be... him for that. They're not judging him for that. What they're saying out there is he was caught attending a party that clearly was a party and he could have put his hands up. But he's never done he that. Didn't, no, but, but, but the point is they're now thinking... He's lied to us. And that's well, serious for him. That, that is serious for him. And you, indeed, you can mark his fall from that. But the point is, 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 is that is in his character to obfuscate charges. And it's worked for him. This until, is a modus uh, operandi. Until now. Uh, it, until now. So what we're seeing then is, remember I said earlier, morality arises when something has changed. Mm. So what has changed in our country? And I think Brexit was part of that change. That change was... We're not taking it anymore. We're not taking being repudiated, being discriminated against. We're not taking powerful minorities, essentially undermining majorities, undermining yeah. shared norms. So what you're seeing here, and I think we should welcome this, is the rise of a new collective morality that says, actually, you know, if we're all in this together, then we all have to be in this together. And what's interesting about that, just to take this into policy, is to say, well, we don't have a set of policy offers that look after everybody in this country. We don't have a set of policy offers that recognises that class is the biggest penalty in this country. We've imported all this garbage from America that it doesn't apply to this country. And very small elites are using that and marginal groups to say this is the issue, but it isn't. The real shame, the real tragedy of Boris Johnson's premiership is he could have been the Disraeli of the 21st century. He could have been the person who reorients the Conservative Party around the concerns of successful people in the South East to a national party that cares for all of its citizens. And the point is, is that was a promise. That was a promise worth voting yeah, for, I and think. It, and it feels like a London chumocracy a little bit. Philip? Come back and see us again soon. Thank you for My giving pleasure. us your thoughts on all of this. In a moment, we will discuss the disgraceful proposal that the Home Office will stop giving us daily figures for those that cross the English Channel. Could this be anything to do with the fact they anticipate 65,000 might come this year? See you in a minute. Have the Tories become the nasty party again? 
or are their MPs just becoming snowflakes? One viewer on Twitter says, again, when did they ever stop being? <laughs> Another says, yes, they are particularly. Javid is a horrible, cruel man, causing misery to thousands of NHS workers for no scientific reason. And this, of course, applies to the fact that if NHS workers, even if they're not in the front line giving medical care, they don't get vaccinated, they lose their jobs on the 1st of April, which seems quite extraordinary. When it's better than the limp-wristed idiot in charge of the opposition, one says. Rich says, yes, particularly to their own voters. And isn't that the sense? Isn't that the sense that Philip Blom was talking about a moment ago? That a whole new generation of people have gone out and voted Conservative. People, in many cases, who perhaps had to really swallow hard before voting Conservative, and they put their trust in somebody, and they fear, they're feeling that trust has been betrayed and he's not been straight with them. Valentina says, could well be. I started to like Boris when I read his article once about his fury and hurt when his cat was attacked by a fox, and I knew he was a kind and compassionate man. Well, OK, look, you know, his articles... One thing for certain, his articles for The Telegraph were always highly entertaining. They often got him in trouble. Now, subject very dear to my heart, the migrant crisis in the channel, and we've had news overnight. I, I almost couldn't believe it. You know, it was a spit-the-cornflakes-out moment, because uh, I'm told that the Home Office, who, as you know... Every day, there are crossings in the channel. Give us the number of people that have come. There's a plan, because, of course, the MOD are about to take all of this over from Border Force, and apparently they're going to stop giving us the figures, or they might stop us giving the figures. But add to that, there's a whole load of figures they're no longer giving us. So let's get the facts. Out Mehmet, chairman of Migration Watch, friend of this programme, out... I saw this at breakfast. I thought, this, I mean, they can't be doing this. Well, Where are we? I had a similar reaction. I couldn't believe it. As a former press officer many years ago, I thought, who's advising the Home Secretary to do this? This is utter nonsense. So just explain exactly what they're saying. Well, what they said was that they're not going to issue figures on a daily basis, that it's going to be done, as far as we understand, on a quarterly basis oh. in the way that they're issuing other figures. But the fact is that people are not going to stand back and wait for the figures to, to issue. I know you're going to be down there. Mm. There's going to be lots of journalists there saying one, two, three, yeah. four. It's all going to come out anyway. So why they would decide now, presumably because they don't like the flack that follows when large numbers come in. Yeah, so they assume if they keep it from us... It'll be less of a story. But the truth is, with speculation, it actually could become even more Absolutely. of a story. Absolutely. People will look, they will exaggerate, there will be leaks. Mm. It will become so much worse. If they're really serious about controlling the, the whole information output, then they should think again. This is absolutely insane. And it's also undemocratic, for goodness sake. Yeah. Why, why would they want to keep these figures? People are going to be seething about this. In fact, I've even heard, they are. I've even they heard are. talk today of a petition being got up about this, and, and, and I'm going to have a look at that tomorrow. There is. We've just started one up. Right. Uh, well, that's what you've heard about. Well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll be having a look at that at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, and I, 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 think I may well get well, behind it. We're, because... we're waiting for it to go live, you know, this, right, okay. the process that uh, it goes through. But, yeah. yeah, I hope your viewers, they all look and sign... The petition, because it's really important 
to get yeah, they the can't, government to change their minds. They can't get away with this. And is it true that the Home Office itself is, is, is working on a base assumption that around 65,000 people could cross this year? I don't know if they're working on that assumption. But look, so far this month, we've reached nearly 1,000. Mm -hmm. For all I know, we've gone beyond that because up until the 18th, it was 946, yeah. I think. So it may well be over 1,000 now. That's over four times what we had for the whole of last January, this time last year. So the numbers are clearly going up. We didn't start getting seven, 800, 1,000 people until May last year. Yeah. We're getting it in January. Then who knows? Yeah, 65,000 may be a conservative estimate. And what else have they hidden from us over the last couple of years? Well, for example, what they've done is, you'll recall at the border, there used to be people with little uh, 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 iPads, latterly, yeah. I think. Um, this and was, they the, would ask this what, was the passenger the, survey, wasn't it? The passenger, the yeah. international passenger yeah. survey. Um, and they would ask people where they were coming from, how long they were going to be here. They asked the same sort of questions on the way out. And there was a, a crude figure, but they were very experienced that, doing this. And there was a figure which gave you more or less the number of people arriving, taking away the number of people who were uh, leaving, and then we had net migration. That was one figure. They abandoned that during the whole pandemic thing. They used it as an excuse. So the prime minister actually to say that immigration and net migration has fallen... Which he said very emphatically. Since that, he said that. I'm not sure what he based that on because we don't know yet what has actually happened. The ONS is basing all its figures on, on the data that's available, things like national insurance and... And the like. So, so we don't know. So let's There's just a lot be of clear. assumptions. Do we have any figures for 2021? Not really. Not not often. Not for 2021. No. no. Um, we we don't know, and we won't really know for sure until later in the year. And 2020. 2020. Well, they told us that the net migration for 2020 was, um, I think, 34,000. Well. Yeah, well, wait a minute. This is when the whole world was in lockdown. Yeah, so it's a different... Air story. travel was yeah. down by over 90%. Yeah. yeah, they're just not realistic figures. So let's wait and see, really, when we start getting some proper figures as to what is going on. Because my assumption, frankly, is that figures will be going up and they will continue to go up for all manner of reasons, not just across the channel, sure. but... Net migration generally will go on increasing in the way that it was before the pandemic set in. And that we're looking at 200,000 plus every year. 200, 250,000, maybe 300,000. That's the level that we were reaching. Yeah. And that means you know, something like 600,000 people coming in yeah. and you know, 300,000 people leaving. Yeah, the, the numbers are going up and up and up. Of that, I have no, no doubt. No. Alp, thank you for coming in and blowing the whistle on these Home Office proposals. They must not be allowed to happen. And as you say, it'll just make it worse for themselves anyway. Thank you very much indeed. That was Alp Mehmet, Migration Watch. We can't allow that to happen. My What the Farage moment. Now, there have been a lot of conspiracy theories around about 5G. 5G was going to do all these terrible things. And a story over the last few days that British Airways have been cancelling flights to Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York and San Francisco because...
the two big cell phone providers in the US have now gone live on 5G and the planes are worried, BA are worried, that the altimeters on their planes may well be affected by 5G. And there are quite a few other American carriers with the same concerns. Can I assure you there's not a problem here at all? 5G is a different piece of spectrum that's been made available and is being used. And the aeroplanes, and I do understand they've been losing money over the last two years and it's difficult, what the aeroplane companies have not done is to update their own equipment in line with the new technology. There is not a major problem here, but there is a big cost for the airlines. And I think what they're doing with this sort of semi-protest is they're looking for some compensatory money. Right, some more of your views coming in. On, and I asked you the question, are the Conservative Party the nasty party again, or is this just the way the world has always been? Mary says, what are party whips in Westminster for, if not to intimidate MPs? It is the nature of politics. Well, yes, I know it has been for decades, but does it mean it has to go on like that? Perhaps it will. Trevor says, the only obvious accusation of being nasty should be directed towards those attacking Boris Johnson. And Tony says, sadly, a lot of MPs on all sides do not understand honesty and integrity. And finally, Alistair says, no, this is yet another smear to try and get Johnson to resign. Well, I'll tell you what's not a smear. All those emails of those hundreds of men and women who put their names forward to stand to be elected for public office who received abuse, the likes of which I've never seen before. How can it be right in a free democracy to actually intimidate people out of standing for public office? So perhaps I feel this just a little bit personally. I accept that. Now, joining me in a moment on Talking Pints, entrepreneur, but most importantly, restauranter, Luke Johnson, who maybe is in a very good mood as restrictions are ending. Well, the GB News pub is open, and I think it's probably quite appropriate that businessman and entrepreneur Luke Johnson is joining me today on Talking Pints. Luke? Welcome. Cheers. The Talking Pints. Good to see you. Now, I obviously want to talk to you about restaurants and pubs and all the things that are locked down, but I'm fascinated how your, your entrepreneurial business career started, I believe, with a nightclub. It did. I was 18 at university, and um, a friend and I went to the local nightclub and did a deal whereby we took it over on a Monday night, and uh, the nightclub... Uh, took the bar money and we charged on the door and we kept the door money. And I knew 20 minutes before we opened it was going to be a winner because there was a big queue of people waiting. <laughs> and I think that moment changed my life. It inspired me to go into business. And that friend was Hugh Osmond? He was, and we were both studying medicine and all set to become doctors, and instead of which we both became businessmen. Yeah, and Hugh's been on this programme during lockdown talking with me. Uh, of course, the thing that people, I mean, the big thing that people really know you for, I guess, business-wise, is Pizza Express. Yes. Uh, which became just the most mega, mega success for you. I mean, how exciting was that? Well, incredibly so, because he and I were 30 at the time, in, uh, very young, and we got this amazing break of being able to take control of this iconic business that was all primed to explode. And so through the 90s, when we and others ran it, um, we grew it to open all over the country, and um, it was the most successful business of its kind at the time and um, paved the way for other things we've each done since. Yeah, that interests me. I, I sort of called you a serial 
entrepreneur <laughs> earlier, but you call yourself a projector. <laughs> well, that's a joke term that I okay. think was used in the Victorian era when business on a, on a decent scale was first getting going. And I suppose the reason the word attracted me was projects is what business is about, ventures. And it's about taking risks and about putting your capital at stake and hoping that your scheme succeeds and that you can, you know, create jobs and create wealth and um, bring pos- prosperity to the country. See, what fascinates me about what, you know, there's a whole list of different companies, different industries. You know, you've done a lot in, in the hospitality sector, but you've been involved in all sorts of other businesses, banking, goodness knows what else. How on earth do you keep on top of a portfolio like that? Well, I think uh, you have to have great partners, which I've always done. So, well, not always, but mostly. What, trusted? Yes, trusted partners who have a stake in the business. So you've got aligned interests, people who are uh, competent and honest and reliable and motivated, who have, the, you know, the same goals as you, ideally, and, uh, you know, have what I call domain knowledge, i.e. they're real experts in the field that they're operating and you have one business, and, you know, I know you don't want to talk about it, but I'm, no. going, I'm going to have to mention it because, <laughs> you know... <laughs> and, hey, we're in a pub having a pint, so we can talk about these things. But patisserie Valerie, things went horrendously wrong, and, and, and you had a very bad time over that. I did, uh, and it was most unfortunate, and um, it's something that I will regret forever. It was the business I thought was my biggest success, and it turned out not to be at all. Uh, and, um, you know, I and others were very badly let down. But there was, a, as I understand it, there was a big hole in the accounts. There was. It's obviously subject to um, yeah, legal investigation. I can't really talk about it any further, I'm afraid. When you've had success after success, which you'd had in your business, you know, right from taking the money on the door, when you've had success after success and then you get a real kicking over something and, you know, the press were not especially nice, I remember at the time. (laughs) Uh, I mean, how do you deal with that? Well, um, at the time, it was very painful, but there are many worse things that can happen. It's not like getting cancer. And realistically, I think having a supportive family and friends and people who looked through this one disaster and said, you know, you've done pretty well in other things you've attempted over the years, uh, and... uh, you learn who your allies are. Mm. And I was very fortunate that other businesses I became involved with way before um, that went wrong, such as Gale's Bakery, for example, yep. have gone on since to do very well. Um, but clearly you, you draw on your reserves of resilience and um, you decide, you know, am I going to crawl away into a hole and disappear forever? Or am I going <clears> to <throat> try and make something of a comeback and continue doing what I love, which is being involved in growing businesses. And you try to coach, to encourage entrepreneurs in this country. And I guess that's part of the message, isn't it? That things can go wrong, but you've got to have confidence in what you do and have the right partners. Do you think that the younger generation in this country are as entrepreneurial as generations that went before? Absolutely, if anything, even more so. Because I think you could argue that the digital economy means it's easier and quicker to scale a business and be truly globally ambitious. And uh, I do meet quite a lot of young entrepreneurs, people who are starting their own businesses, big and small, and, of course, not all of them will make it. But I think that um, younger growth businesses, innovative companies, are the secret to a um, growth economy because they're the ones that really create the jobs and the wealth and 
uh, generate the tax to pay for the NHS and everything else. I think you're right. I, I tell you what, it really, really interests me that teenagers upwards now, they're all traders. Yeah. They're all buying and selling clothes on eBay. Uh, a lot of them have got involved in the stock market over the course of the last year. And I know, you know, perhaps GameStop went a bit mad. But it, I find it fascinating that because of connectivity, you know, people are buying and selling things, thinking about making money, I think more than kids were a generation ago. I agree. And I think working for yourself and building a business um, is something that inspires a lot of young people. Uh, they don't necessarily want a boss. They want the freedom and the independence of being an entrepreneur and creating a product or a service and making it a success. And I think that's brilliant because at the end of the day, all the products and services we enjoy <coughs> as consumers have at some point or other been invented by entrepreneurs and businesses. Mm, mm. And, you know, we need more of them if we want to see a higher standard of living. And in hospitality, I mean, lockdown must have been just, I mean, the biggest nightmare possible. It was inconceivable at the time. I can remember, you know, March 2020 thinking, this can't be right. This, you know, we're not communist China. And yet, for a period, it felt as if we were. And um, not just the fact that one's businesses were being forcibly shut down, but the sort of loneliness and isolation of it and the powerful feeling that was it really making a medical difference? Was this a proven intervention that would be worth the sacrifice? And I have been pretty persistent, as has actually my old partner, Hugh, yeah. in claiming that the collateral damage of lockdowns and these severe restrictions have been far worse than uh, any gains and that a proper cost-benefit analysis of all this you know, dystopian uh, crushing of our liberties has never been done by this government or indeed others. And that um, the real appraisal is yet to come, and I think it will show that a lot of these measures were pretty useless. I did a piece last night on some ONS figures, and this was in, in, in response to an FOI request. I was stunned by the figures, and, and they haven't really had the traction in the media that they deserve, and I guess that's because so many parts of the media effectively supported lockdown. They did. And, and they did. Big you know, sunk cost. You know, they really did. But the figure was amazing, because the question was, how many people have died of COVID who did not have other underlying medical conditions? And the answer was 17,500. Now, statistics, figures can be wrong, but it gave me a sort of sense, a measure, that, of course, that 17,000 families that have lost somebody, and that's awful. But it, against the fact that 700,000 people die every year in this country anyway... Um, I, I did begin to think that we're going to look back at this as a real historical error. Um, I also, I mean, I went to Florida last year where DeSantis, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd adopted a slightly fewer numbers of people in restaurants and bars. They were very, very, very rigid about hand sanitation, temperature checks, everything else. And across the other side of America, California, with almost exactly the same climate, went the other way locked the whole thing up. And actually, in terms of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths, the numbers are about the same. So, I mean, I'm with you. I think this is going to turn out. I think we are going to look back at this and think that it was the most awful, awful, awful thing. But the good news is, and I think 
you may agree with us or not, but I think there have been some quite prominent commentators in the, vo- in, in, in the press, business people, journal- in, you know, independent journalists, and then 100, 100 backbench Tory MPs saying, look, you know, all the evidence from South Africa is that mercifully Omicron is far less serious than the previous waves. And kind of at that moment, Boris Johnson was calling this an emergency. Mm-hmm. Four times he used the word emergency mm. on that Sunday I evening remember. in December. I thought, oh, no. Here we go again. What, what's coming next? Oh, no. And it looks to me like it's for reasons of political expediency, perhaps even survival. But now we've got restrictions being eased. Now we're told that from March the 24th, which will be exactly two years on, from the first lockdown, that kind of we're going to treat COVID like flu. So it may have taken a long time. There may have been some terrible mistakes, but this must be fantastic news for the industry. I think it is in society as a whole, because it's a lot more than just the hospitality industry. I think it's our lives. We are social animals, human beings. We need to be with other people. This idea that we can hide at home and conduct our lives via Zoom, wearing masks all the time, avoiding human contact, well, it's, it's monstrous, in my opinion, and closing schools and wickedness like that, it's, it must never happen again. And one of the conclusions of this period is that we must make sure these draconian and disproportionate restrictions like lockdowns yeah. do not recur, whatever happens. And I agree, we must not, you know, constantly moan about the past and look back. We must look forwards I'm very optimistic for 22, actually. I think there's a boom coming because I think there's a lot of pent-up demand to get out and spend money. The consumer's got a lot of savings that they will want to spend on entertainment, on going out. And so I I feel confident. And you backed Brexit very publicly. I did. And you believed in it. I do. Very much indeed. Are we about to get some of the benefits? Well, I... It's taking a long time. I wouldn't disagree with government's, that. The government's a bit slow, isn't it? It's not just the government. The truth is, I think it would be accepted that we always knew it was a long-term gain rather than a short-term win. Mm. And I think that will come because I think away from the rigidity of the EU, I think there is more we can do as a country to make ourselves more innovative, more entrepreneurial and more prosperous. The corporates, nearly all backed, remain... And the entrepreneurs nearly all back leave. And yeah. I saw that all the way through. Yeah. And a final thought. The big talking point has been politics. It has been Boris Johnson. What do you make of Boris these days? Well, I think he's a flawed character. I think we all knew that who voted for him. Uh, and I think he's had a right battering over the last two years. Who would have wanted his job, frankly? Tough it's as hell. It's been a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know... Anyone in that position will have made terrible mistakes, and I've been deeply critical of him. However, I think to have a leadership battle now would be a grave error. As I say, I'm positive about the prospects. I think we want a period of stability. I also happen to think that he's the only politician in this country who could have won the majority he did in 2019. And I think the Tories would be potentially committing political suicide if they decapitated him now. So I think they will pull back from the brink and I think he will survive. All right. Well, I have to say, I love the thought that 2022 is going to be an upbeat, happy year and a boom. But on that note, cheers. Cheers. Luke Johnson, thank you for joining me on Talking Pines.
We are in the last part of the programme. It is, of course, Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in. I answer them having not previously seen them. So here goes. Matthew asks me, which do you think is more important, social issues or economic issues? Well, if you don't get the economic issues right, the social issues get worse. But I do actually think there is something called community. There is something called society. There is something called family. Um, And in many ways... They matter more than just how much money you've got, provided you've got enough money to be able to live. Terry asks me, in the event that David Davis would have become Prime Minister and offered you a post in his cabinet, which job would you choose? And what would be your first priority in that position? Look, this isn't going to happen in a month of Sundays. The Conservative Party don't like me, even though even though they wouldn't be in government if I hadn't done what I'd done in the red wall seats. But if that was to happen... I would like to be a new separate ministry. Yeah, not, I mean, not that I believe in bureaucracy, but a new separate ministry. Ministry for the reform of the civil service. Because I think that's one of the things that is holding this country back. They'd love me, wouldn't they? Christopher asks, Nigel, what happened to dry January? That is actually alcohol-free. Now, Luke here has got one of his own beers, which curious is... Curious beer. <laughs> curious beer, because he, you know, brews the stuff and owns the company. Um... Dry January, it's, it, it was going really well. It was doing really well until I met uh, with Djokovic's uncle, Goran, who owns vineyards in Serbia, and it went wrong. But I'm doing quite well now. Adrian asks, bless you, why don't the government seem bothered about rising inflation, rising energy prices and falling wages? I'll just do, I'll just do inflation on that. The Bank of England have been behind the curve on inflation. Boris Johnson, as recently as October was underestimating inflation. They just don't understand. Inflation is a disease of money caused by government above all. And my feeling is, and particularly if Luke's right about a boom this year, that we're going to see inflation at numbers we haven't seen for something like 40 years. Right, that is it. I'm done for now. But here's the important bit. Farage at Large is back in 2022. I want you to, I'd love you to come and join me if you live in the Blackpool area, please email me, farage at gbnews.uk. I'll be in Blackpool on February the 3rd doing a live programme. You can go online now, send me an email, book your tickets, gbnews.uk. That's the best way to do it. I'll see you all next Monday. <laughs> 